Introducing the SD Podcast channel, your one stop source for all types of podcasts. We are always on the look for new podcasts to join our channel. If there is any topic you would like to discuss, contact us now. We could be reached on all social media such as Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram. You can also contact us by email or leave us a voicemail at 516-570-9248. So make sure to contact us now so you can start your podcast soon. And welcome to Sarasso and the Beard Podcast, Episode 12. I am Nitz Sarasso. And I'm the Talking Beard, Jose Rivera. And Jose, it has been a little while since our last podcast episode. So good to be back. I know. I, I guess we had our own personal little bye week, uh, so to speak. You know, you know, indulge some good football games, not from the Giants, of course, but from other teams around the league. So it's it's been a decent week off. And we'll certainly get to the Giants as well later in the podcast. But I want to start with introducing our first guest on Sarasso and the Beard podcast, Chris D. Simone. Chris, how are you doing? Doing great. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to uh, see what we have in store for the next hour. Yeah, and uh, certainly we're happy to have you on and. Just to give a little bit of background on Chris, so Jose and I were both announcers for the Staten Island Yankees and also working in one of the divisions for the New York Penn League. You were part of the Brooklyn Cyclones, correct? Yes, I was part of the Brooklyn Cyclones. I was their um, stringer. So the stringer is the person that plugs in the information um, with the uh, Major League Baseball software. And um, if you ever check your phone or check your computer or check uh, – the internet or anything and try to check the score, um, the information that you see that's plugged in. So if whether like a, a ball hit trajectory or um, a pitch comes in and it says it's a ball or a strike or something, I'm the person that's plugging in that information. So you had to be there pretty much like every day doing the stat tracking as well. Yeah, I was, I was at every home game. Um, it was, it was great. Cause I got to, I got to sit in the press box with the uh, radio people and the announcers and um, people like that. And I got to watch all the home games. I pretty much kept a, a virtual book, um, if you if if you want to call it that, um, of 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 the game. But it 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 was just sucked that the the team was pretty horrible. <laughs> yeah, uh, certainly the Brooklyn Cyclones finished with the worst record in the New York Penn League that season, and the Staten Island Yankees. I mean, Jose it finished with the best record in the New York Penn League. So a little bit on the uh, flip sides between the two. But nonetheless, yeah. that had to be a lot of fun, Chris. So uh, why don't we just get right into the podcast, and we're going to start with talking about the NFL and NBA today. And I want to begin with, begin with the NFL. And so, Jose, yet again, we're talking about Ezekiel Elliott and the suspension. Uh, it was announced yesterday Elliott will be suspended for six games with the earliest appeal court date on December 1st, which would mean he's at least suspended for four games, even if he was to get the appeal removed for the final two. But all in all, you look at it, and, and a lot's been going on with the NFL between the commissioner, Roger Dell. We're hearing Jerry Jones has a lawyer now, owners having issues, and even the Colin Kaepernick part with the idea of collusion there. So with Elliott getting suspended, is this a win for Roger Goodell? Well, for first things first, I am taking odds on how many hours until Ezekiel Elliott's allowed to play again on Sunday. I'm not ruling it out just because I, I don't believe it, so to speak. I mean, let's, <laughs> when he's not playing on Sunday, that's when I'll believe that he's actually suspended. That, and I mean, it's it's been a crazy mess so far. We should be talking about all the great action on the field for the NFL. And yeah, it's been total anarchy off the field. Again, with the Colin Kaepernick stuff, 
with Ezekiel Elliott in suspension, with the owners trying to take down Roger Goodell. I mean, it's basically just one giant big soap opera, which, don't get me wrong, I'm loving all this little side traction on the end, but at the same time, it takes away from the game itself. Is the suspension a win for Roger Goodell? I don't even consider the suspension part of the problem, part of the problem, so to speak, because this issue with Ezekiel Elliott, it's kind of a mess to begin with. Um, you know, giving someone suspension when there's no clear-cut evidence of what he actually did. Um, I understand that they backtracked and said, well, this is for all the incidents that he got in trouble for. Fine. I understand that. But this situation has been handled so poorly. You know, he's suspended one week. Nope, he's playing on Sunday. Oh, he's suspended again. Nope, he has an appeal. He's going to play again. That whole thing itself, it's not a win for Roger Goodell because he finally got it done because it took him, what, till week nine, week ten to do it? So, it's not a win for Roger Goodell, and actually it makes Roger Goodell look even worse, especially in a time when the owners are trying to take him down and they're not trying to renew his contract and they want him out. This doesn't help Roger Goodell right now, knowing that it took this long to get a suspension in place, because basically you have people going over your head saying, nope, we're not doing that. Nope, we're not doing this. For Roger Goodell, this has been the worst possible season, especially in a contract year for him, so to speak. Yeah, this is... Been like you said, a lot of side distractions with the NFL, and we're near week ten. We're in week ten, and now Elliott's been officially suspended for at least four games, with the earliest appeal being on December first. But Chris, the Cowboys are five and three currently, just out of playoff reach. And let's assume that come December first, Elliott is still suspended and has to miss two more games. Looking at the Cowboys next six games, they play at Atlanta. Eagles, Chargers, Redskins, and then two more road games against the Giants and then the Oakland Raiders, again, depending on what happens December 1st. But, Chris, can the Cowboys win without Elliott, and do they still have a chance of making the playoffs? Um, I believe that they probably can win a couple games without Elliott. I mean, Elliott's uh, one of the top running backs in the league, and um, replacing him is going to be extremely difficult. Um, but they do have a lot of tough games coming up. I do think they might be able um, to steal a few, maybe. Uh, maybe, for instance, against the Falcons, um, they might be able to steal one there, or maybe um, maybe they could catch the Eagles on off night. Um, but there are some games that coming up that I feel like they could win. They could beat the Chargers. I feel like they could obviously beat the Giants and even the Raiders. Um, but I think it's going to be tough. I think... Um, I think it's difficult because McFadden's going to have to be put into a position where he's going to have to get some touches, and I don't even think he's been playing much of anything um, this whole season. And with all the uncertainty around the team, I don't know how prepared he is to try to step into the role of maybe being the backup to Alfred Morris or being the starter even. Um, so he's going he's gonna to be uh, put in an extremely tough situation. So I think they're going to struggle maybe for the first couple weeks, which is which is unfortunate because they have two very difficult opponents. But then after that, I feel like they might be able to um, get it together for the Chargers and the Redskins and the Giants. And hopefully, hopefully the be- I think the best case scenario for them, um, if they were to play without Ezekiel Elliott, would to go 500. I think going 500 would be uh, a nice wash that they could uh, walk away with and, and still be in a position to compete. Yeah, if, if you're talking 500, you're looking at eight and six at that point with just two games remaining on the season. And if they win out at 10 and six, most likely you're making the playoffs at that point. But it's, again, for me, it's tough to see Elliott doing, uh, uh, without Elliott, second leader in the NFL in rushing yards this season, 
led the NFL in rushing yards last season. That's a huge piece that they're going to be without. And like you mentioned, Darren McFadden, Alfred Morris are the two, especially Morris, going to be able to take over the workload of Elliott and certainly won't be easy for the Cowboys on that standpoint. But what I'm also interested on is Dak Prescott. Second quarterback ever, 35 passing touchdowns and 10 rushing touchdowns in his first two seasons. He's tied with Cam Newton as the only QBs to do so. But for me, I'm interested in how Prescott will do without Elliott. And Jose, could these net six games be the true turning point of how people view Dak Prescott on whether he's a great quarterback or an average quarterback or nothing without a run game? Well, honestly, there's really two parts to that question. Will it be how people view him? Yes. The question is, should it be how people view him? And that's a no. To me, Dak Prescott, obviously, he's still young. You know, he's still he's very talented. As he just said, he gave those stats. His first two seasons in the league really came out of nowhere. What, fourth round draft pick? Dak Prescott is going to be a great NFL quarterback. Is he great right now? I wouldn't say so. I say he's good. He's obviously on the rise. He will be a top five QB in this league. I hands down, I'm not afraid to put that onto the paper and say that and, and say that he will be a top QB at some point. But right now, he's a quarterback, a young quarterback that needs to also rely on the run game, too. You know, there's a reason why Dak Prescott's so good is because number 21 is behind him in Ezekiel Elliott. Same thing with Jared Goff and the Rams. Jared Goff's having a phenomenal season, don't take anything away from him, but it also helps when he has Todd Gurley back back there being super efficient behind them a lot of qbs when they're young have that dynamic run game to go along with it that helps them tremendously and again it's like chris said you know with with ezekiel being suspended now you're talking about throwing in darren mcfadden and alfred morris to do the job asking those two guys to do ezekiel elliott's job is like trying to repair a sailboat with elmer's glue it's not gonna happen well <laughs> it is going to be a lot of leaks and holes it's asking for too much if it's one or two games Sure, throw McFadden and Morris out there. But you're talking about possibly four to six games where you're asking two bona fide backups to do a starter's job. It's going to lead to Dak Prescott throwing the ball around a lot more, which is not a bad thing because Prescott's a good throwing QB. But it also leaves a lot of room open for mistakes. Uh, And you know what? Again, we're going to see how Prescott plays with this pressure. Now, if he goes out there and plays phenomenal, I wouldn't be surprised. But I do expect him to struggle, especially since he's still young and he doesn't have that confident great running back behind him in Ezekiel Elliott. Yeah, I'm a fan of Dak Prescott, but there's always been in my mind that he's never been truly what everybody views him as. I think he's below an average quarterback nonetheless because of the great run game that he's had behind him, because of that great offensive line. So for me, this is really, I'd like to say the moment of truth in my mind with Dak Prescott on how he truly is a good quarterback or not. Because at the end of the day, a lot of this could be if he's terrible these net six games, then I think everyone's going to be saying, hey, he's only good because of that great offensive line. He's only good because he has that great run game. And I think that is a fair point to make because not every team is blessed with an incredible line and not every team is going to have a running back run it for six yards on a first down for you to begin a drive every single time out. And it's just... That's what I'm looking at to see if Dak Prescott is truly that great quarterback that his numbers are showing and that his, the fact that he doesn't throw many interceptions, or is it that when he's finally having to throw the ball 40, 50 times in a football game, like we saw earlier in the season, it just doesn't work out because that's just not the quarterback 
he is, and that's where you can expect him to do certain things. Chris, we, injuries are always part of the NFL, and it's always been destructive, and that's nothing new on that factor, but we've seen it constantly. Aaron Rodgers injured, the Packers have lost three in a row, and now joining that list, the Houston Texans are without Deshaun Watson, who probably would have finished the year as the Rookie of the Year award for the NFL, but he's out for the season. The Texans, in their first game without him, lose to the Colts last week. Chris, are the Texans headed in that same direction as the Packers, or are they going to be able to bounce back without Watson? Um, I believe that the Texans are kind of in a really tough situation. I really don't think they're going to be doing um, – I really don't think they're going to have much success for the rest of the season. Um, Prescott – I mean, not Prescott, sorry, Watson. Um, Watson was really the key um, to the entire team. His connections with uh, Will Fuller and DeAndre Hopkins were explosive. They were – they looked like two of the best wide uh, receivers – when Watson was healthy and playing. Um, I don't think that the Texans are going to really do anything with Tom Savage. I mean, that guy is kind of a joke. Um, and, but they do. They are fortunate enough to play in the division um, that I think – it's honestly, I think, the worst of the division in the entire NFL. There's the Jaguars that have an elite um, defense. The Colts are an absolute mess. And the Titans um, are pretty also dependent on Mariota's health, um, so and he's been banged up all year. So they're fortunate enough to play in a division where I think if they could squeak a couple games out against some bad opponents, um, they'll they'll maybe make the playoffs. Um, but beyond that, I don't think it's possible. I will say the one thing that they have going for them is that Bill O'Brien is their coach, and Bill O'Brien I think has gone through. As much QB diversity as anyone that I could remember since I was following football, he's had everyone from um, as early as as Matt Schaub to Brian Hoyer to Tom Savage. He's had so many people try to tackle the QB position, and he still somehow managed to win games. Um, so I think he might be able to to magician his way out of a couple of losses and tournament to wins. But um, I know they don't think they're going to be um, in any contention without without uh, Watson, which is unfortunate because it looked like he was well on his way to become the Rookie of the Year, like you said. Um, and this is really sad to see, but I think that's the unfortunate situation. Yeah, it was, it was extremely uh, entertaining football player was Watson. Uh, in just a short amount of games, just you talked about the impact he had on the field and you just take that Seattle Seahawks game where he might have gotten hurt in that, but just constant touchdowns in Seattle against the Seahawks defense. Now, yes, they're not what they were a couple of years back, but they're still a formidable defense and a top defense in the NFL, and he's still putting up over 30 points against that type of team on the road. That's just unheard of when you think of it, and that's the type of ability Watson has. And Jose, we had said it from the beginning of the first couple podcasts, Watson was the only rookie quarterback in our mind that was a true starter coming out of the draft. And he certainly performed like that, but it's hard to see the Tetsons. They're three and five right now. Like Chris mentioned, you have the Jaguars and the Titans. And although there's points where you don't trust either one of those teams, both of them are five and three at the end of the day. And without Watson, 
it's hard to see them catching one of those teams as well. Yeah, first things first, I got to say, with Chris being a savage to Tom Savage, that might have been one of the best things I think I ever heard <laughs> in the history of the podcast. But on a side note, yeah, I mean, I mean, you're looking at a team at the Texans, and you know, it's like it's like what Chris said. Bill O'Brien has had a lot of different quarterbacks. What he had like his third string QB start the playoffs last year, or was that the year before? Um, and you know, again, he just he, he always seems to make it happen. But the common theme with those other teams is that the defense was at full health too. This defense is not healthy. J.J. Watt's still missing. There's still a lot of other key pieces missing. And even when Deshaun Watson was throwing up 50 points a game, other teams are scoring 50 to 60. I mean, that game in Seattle was a perfect game to describe the Houston Texans season. They score a bunch of points, but they also gave up a lot of points, and they lost that game. You can't have Deshaun Watson be having career games, throwing 300 yards, you know, four touchdown passes, and lose those games. Good teams, good teams don't do that. And the Texans are just not a good team this year. Even with Deshaun Watson healthy, maybe they make the playoffs, but I see an early first-round exit with it. But now that he's not there, I mean, it's like they said, there was an instant chemistry change when Deshaun Watson played and with Will Fuller when he came back to full health and with DeAndre Hopkins' numbers. That's not going to be the same now with Tom Savage as the quarterback. And, you know, no disrespect to Tom Savage, but, you know, he just doesn't have that connection, and this is just not his team. For the Texans, again, it's an unfortunate circumstance. Obviously, you don't expect guys to get hurt like that and be out for the entire season, but they're not very, you know, they're not well equipped to handle this injury of losing to Sean Watson. So, even though I don't trust the Titans, I think this is the Jaguars' division to lose, which, in a weird way, who would have thought we were saying Jaguars and Rams both have a chance to make the playoffs this year? Um, that's insane in itself. But yeah, I don't think the Texans make this no matter how hard they try going down the stretch. Yeah, it's. It's unfortunate at the end of the day. Injuries happen, and Tetsons are one of those teams that always get injured. Uh, speaking of, as well, we talked about Elliott and suspensions. I want to go into another part of the suspensions because Week 9 featured some good brawls as well. The Bengals wide receiver A.J. Green and Jaguars cornerback Jalen Ramsey got into a fight. Both of them were ejected from the football game. And then Buccaneers wide receiver Mike Evans and Jameis Winston start an altercation with the Panthers. Winston find Evans suspended one game. So, Jose, Mike Evans gets a suspension. He will not play against the Jets this week. Green and Ramsey just ejected, but they were not suspended. Did the NFL get this right? Honestly, I don't know what was what the NFL was on yesterday. <laughs> I mean, or last week, I should say, because... I mean, it was fights breaking out everywhere. Every time I lifted up my phone for a breaking news alert, so-and-so got into a fight. So-and-so got into a fight. And it just it was just nonstop. I don't know what was in the water uh, <laughs> I was, or what was in the Gatorade for most of those games. And all these guys were brawling like it was UFC 217. I mean, don't get me wrong. I get you know itching for a fight, too. But I'm not going to go crazy and start punching random people. I mean, no. And, and there's no clear ways to describe what's a proper fine. I mean, I think this is something that we're still trying to find out across sports. I mean, Draymond Green and Bradley Beal put each other in the headlock the other day and they went flying into the first row and they only each got fined a couple thousand dollars. Um, Mike Evans certainly was definitely should have be suspended for a game. It was a cheap shot came out of nowhere. But at the same time, I kind of understand he was defending his QB. Not really sure how to feel about that, but I am surprised that AJ green and Jalen Ramsey's altercation didn't result in at least a suspension. If it's just trash talk, I understand finding them, but when it becomes a physical altercation and a guy literally tries to slap a rear naked choke around another man's neck, uh, that, to me, raises a red flag. But that might be just me. I don't know. 
Uh, Chris, anything you want to add on the suspension of Mike Evans or the non-suspensions for Green and Ramsey? In your mind, do you think the NFL got it right? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think they, I think they maybe got it right. Um, I, I would compare the the Green Ramsey fight to the uh, the Norman Josh Norman o- uh, Odell Beckham Jr. Uh, scuffle that they had um, maybe a, I think it was a year ago. Um, and I don't believe that anyone got suspended in that situation. Um, I, I could be wrong, but I don't think anyone got suspended there. So um, I think this situation it was similar, but it was I think it might have been a little a little um, less severe than than the the prior one. Um, but the the Evans suspension, um, as as mentioned, was was a really it was a bad cheap hit. Um, although I do like why he was uh, heated because he was trying to protect his quarterback. Um, We've seen that a couple times this year. Of um, we saw with uh, the Titans, I believe someone had the cheap hit on uh, Mariota and his offensive linemen were all up in the in the face of the uh, the people who committed the hit. Um, but you can't really just kind of come out of nowhere and just absolutely shove uh, a defenseless person. Um, so I think a one game suspension there um, is is in order. So I, I think actually they might have got it right this this uh, for this week. Yeah, I'm, I'm in complete agreement. I completely agree that they got everything perfectly right normally the nfl standpoint when you eject somebody from the football game it's almost like serving their own suspension and in part green and ramsey they were at each other's throats all game green just took it a little bit more evident wise uh during his tattling down of ramsey but mike evans a blind hit going to result in a one-game suspension. The only thing that should have happened in my mind was Evans should have been ejected from the football game between the Butts and Panthers. That was the only real surprise in my mind. Um, no, uh, sorry. Um, and so that was the real one thing I didn't expect to see was Mike Evans not ejected from that football game, but overall serving his suspension completely agree with and I guess the Jets catch a nice break where they don't have to face Mike Evans one of the best wide receivers in the NFL and Jets continue to surprise people nonetheless and personally as well going into some of the big games of the week for week 10 the big game I'm looking at are the Saints at the Buffalo Bills Saints sits in two the Bills are five and three and asking me before the season started I don't I did not have the Saints doing this well neither did I have the Buffalo Bills being anywhere over 500 as well and if the season was to end today and the playoffs were to begin the Bills the Saints the Vikings the Jaguars and the Rams would all be in the playoffs and included the Eagles and so bunch of surprise teams making the playoffs in my mind Chris, besides the Eagles, which team has surprised you the most this season? Um, I, I think the my biggest surprise team so far has been the Rams. Um, they have the youngest head coach in the league, um, and they they made a trade for Sammy Watkins, um, and and they also uh, required Woods. Um, and their their offense has looked like unstoppable. They they think they have the best offense in the league. They put up the most points, and they still have a pretty Dynamic defense. Um, Jared Goff has looked extremely comfortable behind his offensive line. Um, he's, he seems to be listening to the coach um, and taking constructive criticism very well. Um, and he, they're playing a league where 
in a division um, where the Seahawks exist and the before Par- Carson Palmer got hurt, the, the Arizona Cardinals um, and that elite defense um, also exist. Um, so I I think I don't think anyone saw this coming. The fact that the the Rams um, would be having such a successful year, but um, I think it's it's been a long time coming, and it's a fan base that certainly deserves it. And they have an elite running back as well. Um, they have a promising young quarterback. They have a great defense. So um, I hope that they could stay healthy because I'd really like to see how far they could go and how uh, how how far the coach could take them. Highest point differential in the lead for the. Los Angeles Rams 108 positive in points through these first eight games so certainly that has been a huge surprise factor on them and Jose a uh, biggest surprise team for you again not including the Eagles because we'll get into the Eagles a little bit later in the podcast as well yeah I also would have said the Rams but uh, I mean pretty much Chris pretty much gave the same reasons I said as well too so I'm going to pick a different one I'm going to go with the Jacksonville Jaguars I mean for the past couple of years, we've heard about how good this defense is supposed to be. You know, they drafted Jalen Ramsey last year. The defense was supposed to be so good, they didn't really show up. This year, the defense shows up, and you have that added prospect of Leonard Fournette, too, coming out of the backfield. And, you know, people knew Fournette was going to be a good good running back, but we didn't know he was going to be this good so fast. And, uh, and, you know, give credit. Blake Bortles, who, in my opinion, is flat-out garbage, he's played a lot better this year. Um, and not just in garbage time. Um, but Bortles has had himself a decent year. Still not great. Still think they should get rid of him. But if the Jaguars you know, had a different quarterback, I think they would be a legit playoff threat. Um, but it's nice to see the Jaguars bounce back. And it's finally nice to see this defense be what they're supposed to be. Now, if they get the right pieces offensively, and remember, Allen Robinson was out for the year as well, too. So that could certainly help if he was here all year long. This team could be dangerous for years to come. Um, you know, the Titans are, are right in there, too. But sometimes the Titans... Uh, you know, they let, you know, they, they tend to choke a lot. And again, they do depend on the health of Mariota. To me, the Jaguars are a more complete team. And I'm very surprised that so far everything's living up to expectation for the Jaguars. So I'll take a different team than both of you guys, uh, because for me, the biggest surprising team has been the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, you're talking about a team that I don't think was projected to do good when the season began. And then when you take into consideration their sits and two and their starting quarterback is Case Keenum, who's the on the active death chart, he's now the number one because Sam Bradford is now on the IR. But to begin the expectations, he's the third string quarterback to Teddy Bridgewater and Sam Bradford, and they're still getting it done. Dalvin Cook was their number one running back. He's out for the year, and you're seeing Guys like McKinnon step up. Overall, even with the third-string quarterback, Adam Thielen and Stefan Dids were two of the top guys in receiving yards in the beginning of the season. The defense has been phenomenal all year by the Minnesota Vikings. I think they allow the least amount of rushing yards per game, only allowing, I think, like 60 a game. And even special teams, at the end of the day, Minnesota, that was their big factor in last season. The defense and special teams, again, doing the same thing. And their offense is actually showing a little bit of life. And I'm even expecting the Vikings to take off maybe when Teddy Bridgewater is actually able to come back. But certainly when you're talking about a team in the playoffs with a third-string quarterback, it's a rarity to say those words. And I don't think there's any other team in football that is able to do that except the Minnesota Vikings right now. Once again, with us on a guest is Chris D. Simone, as we have 
the beard Jose Rivera, myself, Nick Sarasso, and going into the New York Giants with it. And Jose, the Giants are 1-9 and nine to begin the season, and they're just coming off a game where they got pummeled by the Los Angeles Rams. And now the Giants traveling to San Fran to take on the 49ers, who are 0-9 this season. If the Gi- Jose, if the Giants could or should fire Ben McAdoo if this game doesn't end in a win for them? First things first, pummeled by the Rams is really putting it nicely. I mean, some <laughs> of the words that <laughs> to describe last week's loss, I don't even think we can use. But on a side note, I mean, Ben McAdoo, I think, has already written his his offseason plans, honestly. I don't think a win over the 49ers does anything. If they lose to the 49ers, I don't think anybody really cares anymore. Um, and again, you're going you're gonna to beat a winless team that's going to save your job? No. If you lose to a winless team, honestly, I'm expecting them to lose this game, too, because I just don't know what to expect anymore when it comes to the Giants. Um, ben McAdoo has already wrote his ticket. To me, he should be fired. Now, I have a feeling he won't be fired because of you know you could use the excuse of, well, if you lose Odell Beckham and you lose Brandon Marshall, you know, then you can't really do much throughout the season. And hey, maybe they have a different second half if Odell is healthy, if Brandon Marshall is healthy. But really, there's no excuse for this team to be one in nine. They had four talented receivers in Odell, Marshall, uh, Shepard, and Evan Ingram, who's having a nice rookie season. And yes, Odell's out for the year, Marshall's out for the year. But even when they were healthy, not much was going on. And yeah, they had a tough, you know, beginning to the season. They faced a lot of tough teams to start the week. And when you go 0-3 to start the year and you see teams like the Broncos on the horizon and all these other tough teams that they have in front of them, you're thinking to yourself, wow, we're 0-3 and we still have a lot of tough games to play. You know, that factors into it too. But to me, I think Ben McAdoo's completely lost this team. I mean, you're reading about the reports in the clubhouse about how some Giants players are calling him out, saying that he lost this team, he's lost the respect to this team. And once you hear that, I mean, he can call it fake news all he wants. But once you hear that, it's, it's time for a change. And, you know, Ben McAdoo, give him credit. They made the playoffs last year. But we all noticed there's like there was this this sense of confidence that shouldn't have been there that was there to start the year. I don't understand it. Um, you know, Jerry Reese tried to take the blame for this team. But for the first time in a while, I don't blame Jerry Reese. I blame this on Ben McAdoo. And I blame this on the players for underperforming as well, too. But, you know, when you have a terrible season like this, and there's no excuse for the Giants. They should have been playoff contenders this year. It's time for Ben McAdoo to go. So whether they do it now or they do it at the end of the year, I think Ben McAdoo's already wrote his future for the Giants. Now, Chris, are you a Jets fan, Giants fan, or a mystery team? Or, or are you lucky not to root for anything in New York? Because that's <laughs> the way to go. <laughs> no, unfortunately, I, I'm a Jet fan. I'm also... I'm also a Net fan and a Met fan. If it ends with E, I'm a fan. So I triple I, threat. Yeah, I have it pretty horrible. Like, <laughs> it's fan. Yeah, Jose, you can relate on a few of those too. You Nets and Mets. Oh, uh, d- certainly. That's why I chose the Giants because they offered me some sort of happiness until this year. But I could make a whole other podcast on that. <laughs> Nevertheless, Chris, uh, obviously part of New York as well. Uh, hearing a lot about with Ben McAdoo. Do you think the Giants are should go in a different direction instead of Ben McAdoo or stick with their head coach when uh, uh, come next season? Yeah, I mean, uh, if I'm being honest, I have I have no. Well, first of all, I'm not going to even refer him to him as Ben McAdoo because I was texting my friend about Ben McAdoo the other day and it actually autocorrected to Ben Macaroon. 
So I'm going to actually refer to him as Ben Macaroon because I think that's better. Um, so Ben Macaroon, I don't even know how the man is still coaching. I mean, he's probably like one of the worst coaches that New York has seen in just general. Um, the fact that him and Jerry Reese, the GM, can't like put their minds together and realize that there is a glaring need at offensive line and has been for maybe a year and a half. The fact that they can't just go and make a even make a trade or go and draft someone or go and sign someone off the practice squad, it's just it's mind boggling. I feel like that's like that's the root of their problems. They have no run game. They have no protection of Eli. Eli is about as mobile as like a cardboard statue. He can't do anything out of the pocket. He he needs to stay in the pocket. At this point in his career, he has like less mobility than like than than Peyton had at, at his career. And once that once every play breaks down and he has like a second and a half to throw, he's gonna make horrible decisions, which he has been making, unfortunately. And when he throws to these to these receivers that he really doesn't have a connection with, because as you mentioned, all the receivers are hurt. <clears throat> um, he he he's just gonna get um, put in bad situations where he has to throw the ball and and um, hope that something good happens. So everything res- roots from the offensive line and the fact that McAdoo can't figure that out. Is is beyond me. I don't know why he, him and Reese can't can't get an offensive lineman. I'm angry, and I'm not even a Giants fan. <laughs> um, it's just so like obvious. I, and, um, and he also, yeah, he's lost like locker room 100. percent He wasn't even a players coach to begin with, um, like a Rex Ryan type. Rex Ryan at least like was was a players coach. Known as a players coach, and when he lost the locker room, it was unfortunate. But uh, he was he was fired, which which, which is what should happen. And I don't think that Ben McAdoo even should be employed this far. He he was even asked last week at the um, at the end of the game what he what he told his team at halftime, and he literally was speechless. Like he had no, he didn't even he had no words. He was, I, I, he didn't even say anything because I bet you he didn't even say anything at halftime. The man he has no idea what he's doing, and I, and I think he needs to get out of here as soon as possible. Probably the halftime speech was thirty more minutes, and then we get to go home. <laughs> at the end of the day the teams oh if you want to say oh he has no wide receivers they lost Odell Beckham Jr. they lost Brandon Marshall fine but they didn't lose him week one and they lost him week five late in a football game against the Chargers who were 0-4 mind you and they still lost to the Chargers and you look at the Giants you start off 0-4 you've lost to the Cowboys you've lost to the Eagles two division games you lose to the Lions on a home game where the Lions were not always good when it came to late Monday night football. And even the Buccaneers. The Buccaneers are 2-6 and six this season and have lost 6 out of their last 7 games only beating the Giants. So there's nothing that supports in the fact of, okay, looking before those first 4-5 or five weeks before Odell gets hurt and the rest of the wide receivers on the New York Giants, there's nothing to support keeping them. The team has showed no la- uh, nothing's working on team chemistry like you both have alluded to. And, uh, Jose, I agree. I don't know if the Giants are going to even be able to beat the 49ers, who are 0-9 this season. And that's when it gets real challenging and sad to say. Uh, and overall, I do expect them to move on from Ben McAdoo. You expect the Giants to have a top-five pick in the draft. You don't know what their plans will be exactly from that point on. But... This is a really good team that's just completely fallen off this entire season. And at that point, you have to blame. The only thing that you can do at that point is blame the coach. 
it's the only thing in my mind that you come together on that because they had a phenomenal defense last year. They had a good enough offense that should have just been able to get the job done, and they can't even win football games against terrible teams or against even good teams that they should be able to beat. Yeah, I mean, unless Little B, uh, you know, placed a curse on this team like he did with Kevin Durant and James Harden in the past, I can't think of anything else. Um, but I don't think the base god has done such thing uh, for the York Giants, no. sadly. No, I think it just might be just the overall New York curse. Oh, uh, got it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Expecting good things like from the Mets this year? Nope. Expecting good things from the Giants this year? Nope. It, it's the ones that always have to be the surprise factors. Like the Knits or the Yankees or the Jets this year. It's really been that type of moment in my mind where it's just New York, the opposite's going to happen in sports. It's just exactly where the Knits beat the Cavaliers earlier in the season. And the Nets. Yeah. Well, there's not much good to say about the Nets. Oh, man. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it, it's, a, it's a disaster. So I want to get into one last question on the NFL uh, before we move into the NBA. So as the NFL heads to Week 10, we've just passed the halfway point of the NFL season. And on a bye week, with the best record in the NFL is the Philadelphia Eagles at 8-1, and one, but it really doesn't feel like people are giving the Eagles any love as the best team in the NFL. So, Jose, are the Eagles the best team in the NFL? And should we be giving this team more respect with their record? I don't know about best in the NFL. I can say they're the best team in the NFC. Um, and one thing I noted, and we were talking about this earlier in the week too, is that I feel like the reason why people are not acknowledging the Eagles as the best team and the NFC, or whether it's the NFL, is because of everything that's been happening around them. So, you know, people look at it and say, well, the Dallas Cowboys got off to a rough start. That's why the Eagles are in first place. Oh, the Ezekiel Elliott suspension is looming. That's why the Eagles will end up with first place. Oh, the Giants are doing terrible. They're 1-9. That's another reason why the Eagles are in first place. Oh, Aaron Rodgers, he got hurt for the year. The Packers aren't going to be around. Yeah, of course the Eagles are going to have the better record. And then you have the Rams and, and Seahawks who are going at each other. And that's just more reasons why, you know, there always seems to be a reason why the Eagles are in first place or, or why they're doing so well. But you look at this team and out of anybody in the NFC, they are by far, in my opinion, the most complete team that the NFC has. I mean, you have a great quarterback in Carson Wentz that's taken a giant leap forward with his career. Um, you know, you have a good solid defense for them. They have a good offensive line. And now they added Jay Ajayi from the Miami Dolphins, who... He's not a star running back like an Ezekiel Elliott or a Todd Gurley, but he is an every-down running back. Now, no offense to, to Blount and to Smallwood and all the other running backs they have, but when Darren Sproles went down, they lost that every-down running back. Um, you know, that guy that you could use in any situation, not just a third-and-goal running back or a goal-line running back or a third-down, third-and-two kind of guy. You know, a JE is a guy that can go out there and get you the yards that you need to be a successful running back. And you know what? Honestly, they were, what, 7-1 and one without him? They might not have even needed a running back the way Carson Wentz is playing. I mean, the maturity of Carson Wentz has been fun to watch. Um, I'm really glad that both the Eagles and the Rams are having good years because, you know, when him and Jared Goff got drafted, everybody was saying, oh, these two guys are bust. They're not leaders or whatever. And now it's funny to see these two guys leading their team into playoff contention, most likely. Um, but, yeah, for the Eagles, I don't know about the best in the NFL – because you still have the Patriots on the other side and a guy named Tom Brady. I still like the Chiefs, even though they've kind of hit a little bit of a roadblock. But in the NFC, there's no team to me that matches up 
from top to bottom with the Philadelphia Eagles. And Chris, in your mind uh, as well, are the Eagles getting a little bit of uh, not enough love in the NFL for having the best record? Yeah, I think the Eagles are kind of flying a little bit under the radar, which is um, which is unfortunate because they are a really, really good team. Um, they're coached really well. Um, they got a great quarterback. They got a great run game, great offense. Um, their defense is solid as well. Um, so yeah, I think I actually I would agree with their record. I think they are probably the best, most complete team in the league right now. Um, so a couple other teams that I really really like. Obviously, the, the Patriots are in it every year, unfortunately, um, but they are. Um, the Steelers are six and two, and their their offense is extremely potent. And they have a top three wide receiver and running back, um, and their defense is actually surprisingly surprisingly well this year. Um, and the Chiefs, uh, as mentioned, were uh, have had a little bit of a rough patch, but that team is also extremely dynamic. Um, so I think a couple of those. I think the the AFC is a lot stronger, a lot top heavy, but I think the NFC has um, the top team uh, as the Eagles. So you sort of almost alluded to my next question, actually, because I was going to ask, uh, what are your top five? You don't have to orderize it, but just the top five teams in the NFL right now. And I think you had. As you said, Eagles, Chiefs, Steelers, and Patriots were the four of them on what you named. It, what would be your fifth team as well for your top five? Uh, I'd probably put my, my fifth team as, um, as probably the Rams. I'm, I'm all in on the Rams this year. I like them a lot um, for all the reasons I mentioned before. Um, and I think it's, it seems like it's a year where all the teams that – Never really had much success, like as like the Rams, um, the Eagles haven't had much success recently. The Chiefs haven't had that much success. Even teams like the Jaguars and other teams like the Vikings um, and the Saints who haven't had uh, much success as of recently. But um, I think it's a year where a lot of the a lot of teams um, are are finally showing that patience pays off. So um, I'm, I'm all in on the Rams. So I think they're a top five team. And Jose, red week ten as well. We're just above. Uh, past that halfway point, what are your top five teams in the NFL? Well, my top five teams are actually three of them come from the AFC, and they're at the top of the AFC. So I have the Pittsburgh Steelers as one of them in no particular order. Um, to me, the Steelers, you know, they're a team that when they started the season, everybody was questioning it. You know, is Ben Roethlisberger going to retire? Is he done? Does he have anything left? Levon Bell's off to a slow start, and then Bell goes out and picks it up out of nowhere. Um, Antonio Brown finally started to turn around a little bit the emergence of Juju Smith-Schuster. I mean, you just can't write that stuff up. These are the kind of things that go for you when you're having a good year. Guys like Smith-Schuster pops out of nowhere and has this fantastic year for you. I know Martavius Bryant has been a little bit of a distraction for the Steelers, but nonetheless, I feel like the Steelers are a pretty good team and their defense is starting to wake up to as well. Um, you know, the Patriots are the Patriots. They're always going to be a top-five team in the league for me. Uh, and I said before, I like the Chiefs too, even though they hit a little bit of a roadblock. I still like the dynamic of their team. I love Alex Smith, and I like, you know, Kareem Hunt still got it. You know, he's just adjusting to the NFL. You know, most rookies destroy the league for the first couple of games, and once the league adjusts to them, now it's time for Kareem Hunt to adjust back to the league. But I think those three teams are really the top, you know, three of the top five come from the AFC. And, you know, for the NFC, of course, again, I mentioned the Philadelphia Eagles are probably the best team in the NFC. But also, you know, I want to pick the Rams, but there's still something about them that I just don't know. Like I could see them losing three out of the next five, and maybe you know their playoff hopes taking a, you know a little bit of a, a dip there. Um, but I really like the New Orleans Saints. Uh, you know, this is a team that we trashed them coming into the you know earlier on the podcast in the beginning of the year. 
we trashed them because their defense was so bad. You know, they were kind of like the Houston Texans where Drew Brees will throw up 40 points and the defense will give up 50. But I think the Saints deserve a lot of credit. I mean, Drew Brees can, you know, take four Joe Schmoes from the audience and turn them into top wide receivers just like Tom Brady can. I mean, he can make me go out there and look like, you know, Odell Beckham Jr. with the way he'll throw the ball to me. Um, I think Drew Brees deserves a lot of credit with this team. And so did the coaching staff over there, too. I mean, defensively, it's not the greatest team in the world, but they're 6-2 and two for a reason, and they play in a very weak uh, NFC South. But I still think they're better than a lot of the teams in the NFC to begin with. So my top five are actually the same five as you, Jose. I didn't think you were going to have the Saints on yours, and I thought that was going to be our one differential. But for me, it, it, yes, at the end of the day, I think the AFC, as Chris, you've alluded to, and so have you, Jose, is the better conference right now because of the fact is you have the Kansas City Chiefs, you have the Pittsburgh Steelers, you have the New England Patriots, and overall there's a lot of question marks when it comes to the NFC. We just saw Richard Sherman, he's out for the season now, and Seattle is always considered that top team even if they weren't record-wise the top team in the NFC, so I think that knocks down Seattle a huge knock. Again, we're talking about teams like the Rams where you're trusting a first-year or second-year quarterback in Jared Goff. The Vikings, you still have a third-string quarterback. And at the end of the day, there's not much that says that the NFC has these overall amazing teams that are better than the consistent teams in the AFC between the Patriots, Steelers, and the Chiefs. And, of course, you're including the Eagles in this top five because they're 8-1. and one. They look like the most complete team. Their defense is phenomenal. They're amazing at home. Carlson Wentz has looked like the MVP so far this season. And their one main fault was they truly didn't have a running game, and we saw a run game really show up against the Denver Broncos, a team that's held multiple top running backs this season to nearly nothing except the Giants, amazingly so. The Giants were able to run against Denver. But other than that one game, we saw overall Philly just pumble the Denver defense with their run game. And that's the surprising aspect where you wouldn't have expected that to work for them. And Philadelphia, again, showing that they're overall the most complete team. And they did it, I believe, even without Zach Ertz, who's really their number one go-to guy for Carlson Wentz. Further on to that, and my fifth team, it's the New Orleans Saints. They're sits and two. They've won six games in a row. And when you look at the six games, the closest game, an eight-point differential. They've won by double digits in four out of those six games. They constantly are ahead in two-score football games. And there are only two losses coming in the first two weeks of the season to the Minnesota Vikings, who are currently sits and two with one of the best records in the NFL, and the New England Patriots who are always considered one of the best teams in the NFL. So if the Saints have won six games in a row, they're winning by at least a two-score possession game in majority of these football games, and their only losses coming from playoff-bound football teams right now, yeah, I'm certainly buying into the New Orleans Saints and a team that I did not expect to see anything nearly what they're performing. I figured we were looking at a ton of 30-30 football game scores by their defense not being able to do much, and... Their defense has been phenomenal this season, and it's been a huge surprise to see that. And even Mark Ingram. 
Martin Norm hadn't performed well in, what, five years, and now he's finally showing up as a fantastic running back this season. So everything's seeming to go right for the New Orleans Saints, and that's part of the reason I have him as my top five as well. Jumping out of the NFL, we're going to go into the NBA, and staying with the same type of topic of not getting enough love and appreciation in the NBA, in my mind, that's the Detroit Pistons. They're 8-3 and three to begin the season with the second-best record in the Eastern Conference, having won against teams like the Clippers, Timberwolves, and Warriors, and two of those three on the road. So, Jose, should we be taking the Pistons seriously? I mean, I don't... Yeah, I mean, why not? I mean, this is a wide-open Eastern Conference. It's still early to start the year, honestly. Um, so, yes, they're having a decent season so far. They've beaten a lot of good teams. But, you know, but the Brooklyn Nets have also beaten the Cleveland Cavaliers and so do the New York Knicks, but we're not going to label the Nets and Knicks, you know, playoff contenders. <laughs> for the Pistons, it is, diff- it is different for the Pistons, though. Because two years ago, you know, this is a team that came in as the eighth seed. And, yeah, they got swept by Cleveland. And, you know, you know Van Gundy wanted to blame LeBron and all the officials and everybody. But the Pistons did squeak their way in there. Last year, they missed the playoffs entirely. Andre Drummond doesn't have that good of a year. This is still a very young team. Reggie Jackson is a decent point guard in the league. Andre Drummond is a superstar player, in my opinion. You know, and, and this is a team that they're very young. You have guys like Stanley Johnson, who one night is going to go out there and kill it on the floor, but then the next night he'll go for five from the field and just look like a rookie all over again, even though he's in his second or third year in the league. I can't remember which one exactly, but the Pistons are a good team. I'm not here. I'm not ready to label them as well. You know, they're coming for the throne, but in a wide open. Eastern Conference, the Pistons could make some noise. So don't rule them out. Um, should they get more love? Sure. But we all know that with the way that the Eastern Conference works, because it's so weak, they might not get that love. And we're really only looking at the Celtics and the Cavaliers. And I would even throw the Wizards in there, too. You know, most people are going to pay attention to those three teams from the Eastern Conference. Chris, I'll, I'll stick with the Pistons topic. Um, bouncing off Jose's point, uh, they're currently second in the Eastern Conference. Do you think they can finish in the top four in the Eastern Conference this season? Oh, I don't think there's. I don't think there's that that this success is going to last in, until the whole year in terms of top four. Um, I think they've proven that they they do have a lot of talent and they they've proven that they could um, that they're finally getting it together. Um, but I don't. I definitely don't think they'll be top four. I think. Um, you got you got to put the Cavs in there, even though they're not even in the playoff picture right now. I think they'll figure it out. They always LeBron teams always figure it out, and they'll get Isaiah Thomas back. So I feel like he he was uh, he was a top player last year. So um, he'll definitely help um, make the Cavs go into the top four. The Celtics are, are rolling high even without Hayward. Um, that that's a team that that I think um, isn't going to leave the top four. I think the Wizards are also going to be up there. Um, and then there's going to be a bunch of other teams fighting for it. I think the last team that'll crack into the top four, I think, is going to be the Bucks. They just made a trade for um, Eric Bledsoe, and they already have a lot of length, a lot of talent, a lot of defense um, with Giannis and um, Malcolm Brogdon and um, Chris Middleton, and then Jabari Parker's going to come back at some point in the season too, and then also with Bledsoe, I think they're going to be really, really dangerous, and they might upset some people in the playoffs. Um, so I, I really don't think the Pistons are going to stick around much longer. I feel like um, they're probably going to uh, fizzle off a little bit um, and maybe come back down to earth. They also 
their season um, so far. They've they've played um, a cut three games against the West or four games, excuse me, against the West, um, and the rest have been against the East. So they're still going to have to um, go into the into the West um, and and try to win some games out there, which is always going to be difficult. So I think once they start facing um, some some more Western Conference teams, they're gonna they're gonna start uh, fizzle, sizzling down a little bit. And Chris, you brought up a great point actually with with the Milwaukee Bucks and Jose. We both were very high on the Bucks when we did our predictions, and that was our team that we both figured from the Eastern Conference that was going to be that surprise factor. And all of a sudden now, Milwaukee makes this trade for Eric Bledsoe, and in your mind, you have to be pretty happy about getting Bledsoe for the Milwaukee Bucks. Oh, not only did you get Eric Bledsoe, but you didn't have to give up, you know, any young talent for him. You know, when Bledsoe was first put on the block by the Suns, you know, they were saying that in any deal, they wanted a player for the future plus a draft pick. Uh, and when they first talked about the Bucks, because they were linked in before too, they were talking about giving up Malcolm Brogdon. Now they didn't have to do that. All they did, all they gave up was Greg Monroe. Who, but honestly, Greg Monroe at this point of his career is going to be a backup power forward, especially once Jabari Parker comes back from injury, if he comes back from injury. But, you know, Monroe at this point of his career is kind of like a backup power forward slash center. So you gave up that and a draft pick. And yeah, you give up the draft pick. But, for, you know, Eric Bledsoe is one of those players that's worth giving up a draft pick for. You know, he's a guy that's an actual point guard. So what does that allow you to do? Kind of like what Chris says, you know, it allows Brogdon to go back and play his game. It allows Kumpo to not have to worry about being a point guard in basically every position on the floor. I think Bledsoe just gives you a bona fide point guard that lets other guys do their job, and all Bledsoe has to do is just pass the ball around them. And and honestly, when a guy like Jason Kidd, he's done a good job with coaching the Milwaukee Bucks. I hold no you know hard feelings against him for not being able to coach the Nets. Yes, I do. I'm lying, but whatever. He's coaching the Bucks in a nice way, but um, I think you know you give a coach who used to be a point guard a legit point guard, and now you're looking at something dangerous here. And. No, I'm, I'm very excited about the Bloodsoe trade as well. I think he's going to bring a great addition. I was already high on the butts as well, as said Anton Kinkupo. Middleton, I'm a huge fan of Middleton. He's played extremely well. Hold on, hobby. hold on, hold did on. Did I say it right or did I mess it up? Yeah, that was really good. <laughs> All right, we're getting better. Every podcast episode, I'd improve it a little bit more. God, his name's annoying. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was really good. I'm very, very proud of you. <laughs> Chris, we, we've... Jose and I have always had this fun back and forth of if I can get always the names of certain players right or wrong, and a lot of times I butcher it badly, but it seems like I'm getting better eventually. Just took years. There but, were a couple names. Um, there were a couple names today that I, that were a little off, but uh, yeah. I I thought it was I, I enjoyed it. I you said Middleton correctly. That was good. How about Giannis? Can you do you want to attempt his last name? I, 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 once is enough for me today. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if you can do it again, honestly. <laughs> yeah, well, once is enough. It's sort of like going like pitch black in my head, and then it's like, oh, did pretty well. But uh, getting back to an interesting point with the butts, Coach uh, Jason Kidd. For a moment, he got asked on ESPN about a comparison about him and Lonzo Ball, and he had described it saying it's a little bit of a stretch. Right now, maybe in a couple of years, we can talk about it. And part of that was because of Lonzo Ball's early struggles from the field shooting. And 
Chris, it can't be an NBA talk, conversation without it talking about Lonzo Ball right now. So I want to know what your take is on Ball, how he's done so far this season, and uh, even the Ball family. So what's your opinion on Lonzo? Uh, I have nothing against Lonzo himself, but I really don't like <laughs> Mr. Ball, um, which is just his dad. Um, so I, I kind of I kind of aren't I'm not fully upset that he's not doing well because it's kind of just to prove his dad wrong, which is re- again is really ups- upsetting and you know, unfortunate because it has nothing to do with um, him himself. But he shoots in a very, very weird way that I don't think I've ever seen before. He shoots right-handed, but he shoots across his head and his face on his left side, which is really weird. It's also, it's also a, ver- a shot that's, that's very in-your-face, so it's easy to block. Um, I, don't think he, I think he's going to have to eventually switch up his shot, um, maybe switch his form. Um, not so much, not so, so much to the extreme as like Markel Fultz, who can't even shoot in general now, but I think he's going to have to actually change his form. Um, his vision is still there. That's something that I don't think he's going to ever lose. Um, that's something that will stay with him for a while. Um, his his passing is, is extremely dynamic. Uh, he, he's tall enough where he can grab rebounds, but I think right now he, he is young, um, and I think a lot of what's um, playing into his, his mishaps is his decision-making. He's shooting at a very, very horrible clip. Um, he's really not being efficient. Um, I, think he's, I think he needs to try to work on getting, um, getting all the, the players involved on the court and also um, playing some defense. Um, so I, I think it just comes down to being a, a better decision-maker. Um, and also maybe tweaking his shot a little bit um, so that it, it, it's more effective. But in the end, I think for you as well, it's it's more you have to be patient with him, and it's uh, then before expecting too much. But he's not a, a bust in your mind. It's more it takes time. He's a young player that needs to develop in the end, right? Yeah, I think he. Yeah, he. It's only a couple weeks, and um, he has had a couple of few, a few couple uh, of really good games. Um, but yeah, he is young. He he needs he definitely definitely needs some time to develop. Um, he certainly has the, the skill set and the skills. I I just hope he's he's mentally strong to take all the criticism because I, I was even reading reports the last couple of weeks about how players are just on the court talking smack about his family, about his dad, about his situation. Um, about uh, all the publicity he's getting, and so far he's been able to to handle it. But that's a lot to put to play in Los Angeles, to play for Magic Johnson, to play for the Lakers, to have the pressure of your dad, to also have the pressure of a top like three fan base in the league, to have the pressure of also being the the general on the court and to try to get everyone involved. The man is going through like insane pressure. I can't even imagine what how much pressure he's going through. So the fact that he is putting up semi-decent numbers while doing all that is is impressive in itself. But I feel like he might he might collapse at some point and, and maybe um, lose it because it's it is a lot of pressure that's weighing on him. But I hope that's that's not the case because it really it really shouldn't be. Jose, the uh, unless you have anything to add on the um, do you have anything to add on Lonzo Ball and or do you want to jump into a different topic? No, yeah, I mean, you know, someone once told me that, you know, Barnum and Bailey's Circus was going out of business. Um, they told me I couldn't watch any more of the circus shows at the Barclays Center or Madison Square Garden. And I called them a liar because obviously they haven't watched a game at the Staples Center, uh, which is <laughs> clearly what the Lakers are becoming is a circus act. 
No, but I mean, I mean, I think Chris said it perfectly. Everything that he touched on, Lonzo Ball is twenty years old, like nineteen twenties. That's his age frame, right? The kid's not even twenty-one yet. He's not even illegal. I mean, he's not legally allowed to do certain things. I mean, we're placing the pressure on this kid to come in and be an instant success and to be. We want him to be this key holder to a franchise where the franchise isn't even properly developed yet at this point. I mean, if the Lakers were, were missing just one piece and then they drafted Lonzo Ball, that'd be a different story. But this entire team is in shambles. I mean, there's no direction with the LA Lakers. Right now, I look at two guys. I look at Lonzo Ball and I look at Brandon Ingram and I say, okay, these are the two guys you guys are building around. Honestly, I like Kyle Kuzma. I think he's going to be a good six-man, though. But everybody else in this team is not going to be with the Lakers in three to four years or two to three years, whatever. You need to start building around Lonzo Ball and Brandon Ingram. Therefore, I'm cutting slack on Lonzo Ball. I'm not going to crap all over his numbers because what's his incentive to play right now? He's still learning. He's still a very young player. And I'm sorry to break it to a lot of people, but a lot of freshmen and sophomores don't break down the door in the NBA their first year in the league. Yeah, guys like Carl Anthony Towns did it, but those guys are different breeds. You know, Kyrie Irving did it. John Wall did it. But those guys are different. Not everybody's going to be a John Wall and come out guns blazing to start their career. It's going to take some time. I think Lonzo Ball is a terrific passer. His assist numbers are there. You're seeing it. And it's like Chris said, he's had a couple of games already where he's dropped triple doubles. So the talent is there. The question is, can he stay mentally strong, ignore the criticism, which I think he can. Because if you have a dad like Lonzo Ball, I have a feeling like Lonzo Ball is that guy you know when you play like little league baseball and there's that one dad that, that shows up all decked out in the in the, you know in the in the in the uniform with the child and basically he's like the unofficial assistant coach just yelling from the bleachers like that's Lavar Ball clearly so I have a feeling Lonzo had to put up with this almost his entire life so I think this kid just by having a dad like Lavar probably has nerves of steel and is strong mentally as can be I just think you need to give him time and honestly again even the Lakers franchise itself needs time. There's no reason to start placing pressure on Lonzo Ball because this franchise is not doing anything to help him out anyways in terms of giving him pieces around them. The Lakers are not going to contend for a playoff spot this year. They're not contending next year. So honestly, what's the rush? Just let the kid develop. And honestly, the only reason we're, talk- we're sitting here talking about his numbers, the only reason we're sitting here you know, talking about how Charles Barkley was crapping on his shooting form yesterday on TNT is because of LeVar Ball. And now you're seeing the downside to his dad um, talking all that crap in the beginning of, you know, before he even got drafted. Yeah, if I told you Lonzo's stats were 8.8 points per game, 6.3 rebounds, and 6.8 assists per game, you wouldn't be making too much of a big deal. Maybe we'd be saying, hey, I, I figured his assists might be a little bit higher towards 8 or 9 instead of low 7 at that point. But it's really just his shooting percentage. 29 from the field, which is a abysmal and 23 for three eventually that's going to come you have long enough time where you're going to be practicing jump shooting you're going to be practicing doing constantly playing more games dealing with point guard defense dealing with pick and roll offense you're going to uh, you're going to get better it just takes time a little bit. And I, I think it's more, you just have to be patient. You just have to wait it out a little bit. He's going to have his struggles. And there's going to be a lot of people that are going to root for him to fail because of just the situation and the environment he grew up in. And there's going to be plenty of people that are going to root for him because of the environment and the situation that he grew up in. So for a Laker fan in general and just 
fans of the NBA. I think it's more you're just going to have to be patient before you can expect too much from him. But he's not a bust in my mind. He's just shooting poorly to start off the year. And that happens from time to time. And honestly, who else is there to shoot on this team besides him and Brendan Ingram? I mean, yeah, they have Brooke Lopez, but you know, a lot of the responsibility, a lot of the point sharing, a lot of the workload basically is going to fall on his shoulders anyway. So he's going to take a lot of shots per game just because he is one of the very few reliable options. Yeah, and he's only shooting 10 or 12 times a game anyway, so he's not getting that many reps in in in-game situations. But uh, turning into the next question as well, Chris, the Cleveland Cavaliers are 5-7 and seven to begin the season. The Cavs are just 3-7 and seven in their last 10 games, having allowed at least 112 points in each of their last 10 games. Are you concerned about the Cavs right now? Um, I'm a little bit concerned. Um, I think that LeBron is doing everything he possibly can to try and make sure that the team around him is performing at the level that he wants and expects, expects them to play at. Kevin Love's having a really great season, but a lot of the players are not panning out as they thought they would. Rose has been, Derek Rose has been all right. I mean, he's he's been okay on, on offense. Dwayne Wade is, is really starting to unfortunately show his age. But the, the main issue here, and it was also a big issue last year, that they really didn't figure out and, and kind of just used their ball movement and their shooting um, to their advantage. But the real issue here is their defense. Their defense is is really subpar. Um, when the Nets played the Cavs I was, and I was watching LeBron play, um, there were some times where I, LeBron wasn't even running. He was just kind of like coasting and not giving um, not giving his full effort on the court. Um, and even though he's not giving, he wasn't giving his full effort on the court, he was still keeping his team in it as best as, as, best as he possibly could. Um, so I think LeBron is, is kind of just taking it easy I think he's just going to try to cruise into the playoffs. I don't really feel like he cares about having the one seed or being even like the two seed. I think he just um, cares about getting into the playoffs, making sure he's uh, refreshed and healthy, um, and so that he can get into the playoffs. But in terms of defense, I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do. They have they got Jay Crowder. He's a great defensive piece, but everyone else around them is just shooters that are can shoot, and that's kind of really it. Like J.R. Smith. Shumpert, Kyle Korver, Shang Fry, all these guys were never ever known for their for their defense. They they were just known for their their um their their shooting. Um so and then the guy that they're really kind of holding on to and hoping comes and 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 be and is their hero, Isaiah Tom Thomas. Um he's a, another um offensive weapon but also provides zero on the defensive end so i really don't know where the answer is going to be here um the Cavs the past couple of years have always made a trade or two right before the deadline so maybe they can finally ship out Shumper um and get get a pj tucker type or or like maybe a, pa- a patrick beverly type someone who's um very defensive defensively focused but right now it is looking grim but they they do play in the east. Um, the east is unfortunately um, a, a very very wide open, um, so that they, they can slide in. But I don't know right now if they could be a top a top four team or a top three team. I think it, it'll be on. It's it's. I, I've learned to never count out LeBron James, and he, he is healthy. So as long as LeBron's there, I think they could they could win any game. But right now they're just not doing it. Jose, any. Um 
point you want to add with the Cleveland Cavaliers. Is there concern in your mind about the Cavs, especially defensively as of late? I mean, it's not April yet. So, I mean, usually around April 1st is one thing. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's just, it's so funny that, you know, we sit here and we have these conversations about are we worried. And usually, like I say, like in perfectly like Chris said, you learn not to count out LeBron James. But I'd be lying if I said I wasn't just a little bit concerned. I mean, it's like what Chris said, you know, Dwayne, we weren't expecting Dwayne Wade to look this bad. Not that he's looking flat out awful, but he is starting to show his age a little bit. You know, and then you have guys like, you know, Shumpert, Smith, who are giving you little to nothing. Uh, Derek Rose has been doing pretty decent for the Cavaliers. I think a lot of it hinders on when does Isaiah Thomas comes back. And when Isaiah Thomas comes back, then we can revisit this conversation. Because if the Cavaliers are still playing this poorly with Isaiah Thomas on the court, then there might be a problem. But uh, in the meantime, like he said, I think P.J. Tucker would be a great name to bring in if you're the Cleveland Cavaliers. I don't know how available he'll be since he is in Toronto, and Toronto probably wants to try and make a playoff push as well, too. But I do think the Cavaliers do need to shore up their defense, but you got to remember Tristan Thompson's injured right now. Isaiah Thomas is injured right now. And I don't know if when you get those guys back if that becomes the answer for the Cleveland Cavaliers. Um, defensively, though, I mean, this is a team that's always been kind of poor on defense. You saw it last year, too. You know, you brought in Dre Crowder to try and help that. Um, but honestly, there's just not many great defensive players that come off the bench these days in general. Um, so trying to find that guy is going to be a little bit hard. So I'm not fully concerned about the Cavaliers because, again, to me, they just look bored. And the Eastern Conference is so weak that they'll make the playoffs. I know they will. Um, but it does concern me when you look at teams like Boston playing so well, even without Gordon Hayward, or you have the Pistons playing so well as a team, and you see the Bucks getting better. Um, and you're seeing a lot of sneaky teams in the East that can fill out the bottom of that conference for the playoff spot. If you're the Cavaliers, I get it. You're not putting stress on it because you know you're going to be in the playoffs. But the question is, how good are you going to be to try and take down these upper-tier teams that are pretty good in the East, like the Wizards, like the Celtics, like the Pistons, so to speak? And Yeah, at the end for me, the concern is 10 games, 112 points in each of the 10 games. For the first two games that they won, they gave up less than 100 points to both uh, when they had to play the Boston Celtics in the first game of the season. But after that... I mean, you're talking about a huge differential in points, and having to expect so much offensively every single game, that's something of a little bit of a concern in my mind. Uh, sure, you can make the case that some of the games that they can win or that they're not um, they're not out of it in that sense. Like the game against Houston, overall just, they even though it's a close finish in that way, it's one of those type of situations where they got killed in rebounds. Like, close to 20 in differential when it came to rebounding against the Houston Rockets. That's not going to happen often. And in a game like that, they still only lose by just a couple points. So in my mind, I'm not too concerned uh, long-term when it comes to the Cavaliers, but I am concerned on just the fact that defensively, they are giving up a ton of points early on this season. But it's not April. There's not too much you have to be worried about right now. and There's no reason to assume that this team isn't going to make the playoffs when they're just two games under 500 through 12 games. Uh, Jose, the Thunder are 4-7 and seven to begin the season, and they've lost four games in a row. Is there a little bit of just the try and getting... Is the team just dysfunctional right now because they haven't really played many games together, or is this something that we could expect long-term for them this season? Yeah, for the Thunder, I'll cut them a little bit of slack. I mean, obviously, again, the season just started, what, we're three weeks in, and you're seeing guys like Russell Westbrook, Paul George, or Carmelo Anthony, 
you know, these are guys who were the guy on their team for so long. You know, they didn't have to pass the ball. They were always the guy that they could pass it to. I'm not saying that they can't do it because, I mean, if you watch their games, they are passing it to each other. And their attitude as well, too, is a good attitude. I truly believe that Westbrook, George, and Mello want to make this work. They're not selfish basketball players, but they are struggling because this is the first time in their career where they have another guy to pass it to. Or, you know, they have to get the ball up in those kind of situations. They're not used to it. Do I think they can do it? Sure. They just got to find their groove a little bit. One thing that does concern me about the Thunder, though, um, is obviously, you know, the Western Conference is a lot deeper than the Eastern Conference. So if it takes the Thunder too long to develop this chemistry, you may find yourself in a position where you don't want to be in um, because you're going to have a lot of good teams on the Western Conference side that might take up a lot of those spots, you know, really fast, really easy. Obviously, we know the Warriors are one of them. The Rockets look good right now. And even Denver looked really strong yesterday against the um, against the Thunder last night defensively. So you can't. There's a lot of different teams in the, in the West that can really come out and punch you in the face on any given night. So if you're the Thunder, you don't want to take too long to build this chemistry because you have all those teams that could jump over you in the meantime. But also, Stephen Adams left the game yesterday because of an ankle injury, or I believe it was a calf injury. And after that, the Thunder looked really, really small on the floor. The Thunder needs to bring in some bigger-sized players to at least come off the bench because when they don't, this team is ridiculously tiny compared to a lot of other players. I mean, you saw how small that, that, that lineup was when Adams left the game for the last three or four minutes in the game. The Thunder will not be successful if they're playing that small against a lot of other teams. And, Tris, any concern in your mind when it comes to the Thunder? Yeah, I'm a little bit concerned. Um, I, uh, it was just alluded to that um, they, are, they are struggling to kind of divvy up the, the possessions and who's going to get the ball and take the shots. Um, I think the root of it, I hate to, I hate to harp on Melo, but Melo was just such a black hole on, on offense. He just gets the ball and, the, and just shoots or turns it over. You can't live in, in this day and age in the NBA um, and be successful running just a straight ISO scheme. Um, it, you kind of have to pass it around and find the open man and get who, trust your guys and, and trust that if they're open, they're going to make their shot. Um, and Melo is, is shooting horrendously. There's, uh, I think the other day he shot four for 16 or something. That just can't that can't happen, especially on a team where there's a lot of talent. This is probably the most talented team he's ever been on. Um, and I think Westbrook is gonna is gonna be the key here in terms of um, how he divvies up who's gonna get the ball and how many shots they're gonna take. Um, he has a lot of experience playing with um, Durant, obviously, and he had to he had to split up his time with Durant and vice versa um, because both were two superstar players. Um, so I think he he knows how to do it. I think he's he's had a lot of experience um, playing alongside a superstar. Maybe not two. Um, two capable offensive weapons, but at least one. So I think he could. Um, I think he could still figure it out. And I think even if Paul George doesn't have a big offensive night, he's still one of the best two-way players in the game. Um, so he could at least rely on his defense to impact the game and change the game. But in terms of Melo, he's not going to bring much on defense. He's not going to bring much in terms of passing. He's either just you're either just going to hope he he doesn't run an ISO play and and scores uh, 20 points for you efficiently, or he's not going to be of much use. And right now he's he's not really proving to be much use. So I think they have to find a way to either let him buy into the system and try to um, play a little bit more team ball, or they're going to continue to struggle and and uh, and start and continue to lose. So for me, I don't have any concern for the Thunder on 
just one stat, uh, and it was uh, positive and minus point differential. And the Thunder have a plus, I think it's four and a half uh, in point differential per basketball game. They're the only team that has a positive point differential that's under 500. And so, in my mind, that's just going to... And you're talking about a team that had to lose four games in a row, and that's only to get it to where it's at right now of a four uh, in positive. So, I looked at it and just say, you know, expect early uh, struggles from the Thunder, especially with Westbrook, Mel, Paul George having to all try and get affiliated with each other in those type of situations where you may have to take the open shot or you're passing up on a situation. But in the end, I, I expect all of them to be able to figure it out pretty quickly because they all got to the NBA because of all their talent. And in simple, it's going to be more of, I, I hate to use the word like plain selfish, but it's going to be where if you try and do the extra play, because you don't want to take the shot, is when you're going to fail. And so if you're trying to pass up the uh, that to pass it on to a different player because that other player is just as much of a star as you are, then I think that's going to result in them making extra mistakes, and that could lead to problems for the Thunder. But long-term, I don't think so, because these are some of the top players in the NBA, some of the top scorers, and at the end of the day, we still have a positive... Uh, point differential for the Thunder, and they're 4-7 and seven with four straight losses. So uh, there's not much concern in my mind when it comes to Oklahoma City Thunder. I think they're going to be fine. Now, do I think they're going to finish with a top spot in the Western Conference? Probably not. But I think that's one of those situations where I think the Thunder look at their team and say, hey, we can go toe-to-toe with any team anywhere. So there's not really a concern a long-term as well for this team when it comes further down the line for the playoffs. With that in mind, now it's time for Beard Back, when we take a look back in sports history. And we're taking a look back on November 10th, as that's when we're recording the podcast today. And just two things really stood out to me when doing some research on sports history. So going way back in 1957, where the NFL record crowd of over 100,000 where the 49ers were versing the Rams in Los Angeles. So a long time since we've had a crowd like that. I know we see a lot of times an 80,000 mark, but the record of over 100,000 back in the 1950s. And this record ended, but in 1991, Bernie Tozar ends at the time NFL record 308 pass attempts without an interception. However, that record was broken in 2010 by none other than Tom Brady, who holds the record at 335 passes attempted without an interception. But I mean, credit both of them at that, at talking about 300 pass attempts to go without an interception, a huge, remarkable chant. And Bernie Tozar doing that in 1991, and those are our two beard bats as we looked into sports history. And as always, with following beard bat, we have our dude and dunce of the week, and my dude of the week has to be Jared Dolph, 311 passing yards, four touchdowns in the relentless destruction. Apparently, just pummeled wasn't enough to use earlier as the Rams 
destroyed the Giants 51-17 to in the win. And doing it on the road, mind you, when you're traveling from Los Angeles to New York. Never an easy thing for a 1 o'clock football team, and to come out and utterly destroy your opponent, putting a real easy way to give Jared Dolph the dude of the week. And Jose, who is our dunce of the week? Well, since the beginning of this podcast, it is a fun fact that I have never chosen a member of the Ball family to be my dunce of the week. Now, a lot of you are already probably guessing that you know, I, I should have picked LeVar or Lonzo or even LaMelo at this point. I think the last person anybody would have bet that I would pick for Dunce of the Week, actually my first one from the Ball family, is actually LeAngelo Ball. Earlier this week, or I don't know if it was later last week, he was arrested for shoplifting in China from the Louis Vuitton store. First of all, one, I thought he was a big baller and that big ballers don't steal things. Or maybe I just don't know what a big baller is because I'm not one. But... <laughs> So be it, LiAngelo Ball is the Dunce of the Week, and congrats, you are the first member of the Ball family to be Dunce of the Week, and I'm sure there'll be plenty of more from this family to come. Yeah, I was about to say, we got a long season. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure one or two of them are going to pile up in there. <laughs> but he, it was disappointing to have to choose him as the first, because you know, I have a lot of hope for LiAngelo Ball. I know a lot of people think he's going to be the one not to make it, but I've read reports and scouting reports that he might actually be the best out of the three, and he's the one that talks the least out of all of them. So he was actually one of my favorites. But LiAngelo Ball, congrats on getting dunce of the week. And lastly, on Strauss on the Beard, uh, former MLB pitcher Roy Holiday passed away this week at the age of 40 in a one-man pilot plane crash. And both our thoughts and prayers are with Holiday's family in this tragic moment. Holiday, I mean, simply describe him. He was one of the best pitchers of his era. And we're hearing stories this entire week uh, that are being told lately. Just a small part of how incredible of a man he was on and off the field. Again, he's most reminded for his perfect game, where it was the 20th ever in baseball history. And then just shortly, a couple months later, he threw a no-hitter in the playoffs, the second pitcher ever to do that. One of the top pitchers of his era and forever will be missed as well. And to wrap up Saras on the Beards podcast episode 12, as a reminder, what episode 13 will be coming out next week, and we'll be talking about the NBA and the MLB, as we'll be talking about a lot of the awards that have been given out in the MLB, as well we'll talk about some of the free agents, some players that got qualifying offers, and of course we're seeing a lot of manager changes in the MLB, Mets, Yankees, where we expect some managers to go as well, and how we think certain teams should go towards free agency. So we'll be talking a lot about the MLB in episode 13, but I also want to say thank you, Chris, for joining us today as well. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a great time talking with you guys and talking sports, and uh, I look forward to hearing from you uh, here in your next podcast and um, hearing maybe hopefully come back on another point um, in the future. So thanks, thanks a lot certainly always welcome to join us again on the podcast and just in case any listeners want to try and follow you what would be your twitter account so that they can follow you from certain stats or certain sports that you actually talk about as well yeah um i don't really tweet much but uh if you want to follow me um it's chris um, d915 um that's i think my twitter handle um so feel free to toss a follow um i'll be more than happy to uh 
to try and post more stuff. <laughs> and of course, Jose and I are also on Twitter as well at Sarasso underscore the beard. And you can also on Facebook, Sarasso and the beard, where we also post the podcast episodes. And you can always check out the podcast episodes on the SND podcast channel. And Jose, anything else you want to add for the final thoughts on the uh, episode 12? Yeah, uh, I mean, like you said, you know, rest in peace to Doc Holliday. I mean, Roy Holiday, tremendous pitcher, really. Um, should be a Hall of Famer. Um, was fun to watch him dominate them. So really sad to hear that. Um, thanks again, Chris, so much. You were great today. All your takes were great. Um, so that was fun as well, too. And can't wait for the next episode, man. I mean, I'm pumped and ready to go. Um, I'm already starting a protest. So if anybody wants to follow me, uh, Arenado should be on the MVP list. I have a bunch of uh, pitchforks and torches. We can head down to the MLB office in the city. Yeah, certainly we got a lot of MLB to talk about, especially the awards and the finalists to it as well. So stay tuned for that next week when we talk about episode 13 about the MLB and the NBA. And thank you again for listening to Sarasso on the Beard, episode 12. Once again, I'm Nick Sarasso. Alongside with me was the Talking Beard, Jose Rivera. And a special thanks to Christy Simone for joining us as a guest. <laughs>